0: right where we're there in Matthew chapter number 17, and we've been going through this uh, Sunday night series called The Life of Peter, and we've been just going through and kind of looking at the passages in Scripture that highlight this man, Peter, this great apostle, of course, and we've been learning about his life, and tonight we find ourselves on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, and of course, this is a great event in the Bible. And this is the, the event where Jesus brings Peter and James and John, which were his inner circle among the 12. He had the 12 apostles, but he had three that he was uh, particularly close with. And he brings them up on this mountain and he transfigures himself uh, to them. That's what we're learning about tonight. And there's several lessons we can learn from this. And if you're uh, able to take notes, I'd encourage you to take notes. On the back of the course a the week, there's a place for you to write some notes down. And I'll give you three thoughts uh, this, uh, this evening. And uh, uh, we, will, we won't take any longer than we need to. The first thing we learn from this story of the Mount of Transfiguration is of the preeminence of Christ. And it is the fact that Christ is uh, preeminent above all things. And I want you to notice what happens here in the story. You're there in Matthew 17. Look at verse 1. The Bible says this, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. So he separates them from the other disciples. There's 12 disciples. He takes three of them with him to this mountain apart. Notice verse 2, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So he transfigures himself or transforms himself, and he shows them basically what a glorified body is going to look like. And throughout the Bible, we find that these, we see angels and we see Jesus in the book of Revelation. In fact, we'll look at it here in a minute. We see uh, several different uh, times that these these heavenly type bodies are shown and they, they all basically have the same dist- uh, description. Their face did shine as the sun. It says here about Jesus, his raiment was white. As light. Now, you're there in Matthew. Go to the book of Luke. Let me show you how uh, it shows it there. This, this Mount of Transfiguration is mentioned, this event is mentioned in several of the Gospels, and we're going to look at uh, a few of them tonight. Luke chapter 9, look at verse number 13. Uh, 29 luke chapter 9 and verse number 29 notice what the bible says and do me a favor when you get to luke put your ribbon or bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it luke 9 says this and as he prayed and this is again about the mount of transfiguration The fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. So we see here that Jesus changed his appearance to basically show himself bright. His face actually shone, his countenance shone, and his clothes began to shine. And this is the same description we see in the book of Revelation, when Jesus appears to John. In fact, I'd like you to look at it. Keep your place there in Luke. We're going to come back to it. But go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. It's the last book in the New Testament. It should be fairly easy to find. Luke chapter number 1. And look at verse number 12. Luke chapter 1 and verse 12. We're not going to take the time to read the entire chapter, but we have here John who's exiled on the Isle of Patmos and he sees a vision of Jesus. Jesus appears to him and Jesus is going to begin to give him uh, messages and letters that will be written to the seven churches in Asia. But notice what it says in verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me because he hears this voice behind him and being turned i saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven candlesticks one like unto the son of man and of course the son of man is a reference to jesus and he says i saw someone that looked like the son of man that looked like jesus clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the pops with a golden girdle notice verse 14 his head and his hairs were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, like as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, notice, was as the sun shineth in his strength. So the same way that the sun shines in the middle of the day, he said, that's how his countenance shone. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. And like I said, we we find this description throughout the Bible. We find it in the book of Daniel. We find it in different places. And this is what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus brings up Peter, James, and John, and he transfigures himself, or he transforms himself, and he shows himself in a glorified sense or in a glorified body. He shows himself in his glory, and his face is shining, his clothes are shining, and it's a very impressive sight. But that's not it. There's more. Go back to Luke chapter 9 and look at verse 32. Not only do we have Peter, James, and John there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus in his glory, but we also have two other men that show up on that mountain. Look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 30. And again, I'm going to just take you through several of these passages uh, just to show you different details in, in them. Luke chapter 9 and verse 30, notice what he says. And behold, there talked with him, referring to Jesus, two men, which were Moses and Elias. And Elias is, of course, the uh, New Testament version of the name Elijah. So we have Moses and Elijah, notice verse 31, who appeared in glory. So they also appear in the same way in glory or in their glorified bodies and spake of his disease and he should, uh, which he should accomplish At Jerusalem. Notice verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory. So Jesus takes them up on this mount. You know, Peter and James and John, kind of like in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying off somewhere, they fall asleep. They wake up and they see Jesus, but he's in his glorified body in this awesome uh, brightness. And they see two men with him and they recognize them as Moses and Elijah. And I'm not sure how they recognize that or it was told to them or something, but they identified the fact that it was Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and they saw his glory, it says at the end, verse 32, and two men that stood with him. Now, let me begin by just kind of explaining to you the purpose of the Mount of Transfiguration, and why Jesus even did this, and and, and what was the point. Go, go uh, keep your place there. Let me see. Go back to Matthew chapter 17 if you would. And uh, actually, Matthew chapter 16, and look at uh, verse number 28. Matthew 16 and verse 28. In Matthew 16 and verse 28, the Bible says this. Actually, look at verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father... With his angels and then he shall reward every man according to his works. All right? So we see that uh, there's a reference here to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom and his glory and and the things he's going to do. The millennial reign, of course, is where we are rewarded according to our works. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus tells them that there are some standing here. He's talking to the 12 apostles and he says there are some standing here that they're not going Die till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, and and I believe what He's saying here is that He's gonna they're gonna see how He will come or what that kingdom will look like, and people get these ideas, and say, well then, were there people that didn't die, and they're still alive, is John still walking around, or Peter, or whatever, but the point is this, that that is fulfilled in verse 1 of chapter 17, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringing them up into an high mountain, and was transfigured before them, because what you have on the Mount of Transfiguration, is a beautiful picture of the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, you of course have the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified body. And then you have Moses and Elijah. And throughout the Bible, you'll find this phrase, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And oftentimes, the way that they refer to what we refer to as the Old Testament, they refer to it as the law and the prophets. And they'll quote the law and the prophets. And Moses and Elijah are a perfect... A representation of the law and the prophets, because Moses is often equated with the law. In fact, Moses is the one who wrote the law, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. So here, I want you to understand this picture. You have this mountain, you've got Jesus, and you've got Moses, who represents the law, who's the man that God used to bring us the the genesis and exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy and then you have elijah who's probably the most famous of the prophets and would be a man that would represent the prophets and these two men moses and elijah are really a picture of the old testament They're picturing the law and they're picturing the prophets. And then you have Peter and James and John who are New Testament apostles and they represent the New Testament believer. And what is being showed on this mountain is that Jesus bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is Jesus who who brings together the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in the coming kingdom, it will be a kingdom made up of Old Testament saints and New Testament believers, and that's all pictured here uh, beautifully on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me show this to you from another passage. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. You're there in Luke. You're going to go John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. So you have Moses who represents the law. You have Elijah who represents the prophets. You have Peter, James, and John who represent, who are apostles, of course, and they represent New Testament believers and New Testament Christianity. And then you have Jesus, who puts this all together and bridges this all together and connects these two things. Because the Bible says in the book of Acts, it tells us that the prophets spoke of Jesus. The prophets prophesied of Jesus. They told of this coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, I love how it's worded here, and I wanted to show it to you, you you have the same idea, Ephesians 2, look at verse uh, 16, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16, notice what the Bible says, and that he, now we're not reading the whole chapter in its context, I'm not going to take the time to do that, but the he there is referring to Jesus Christ, notice what it says, that he might reconcile both, and again, we're not reading the whole chapter, you can read in its context if you'd like, but the both there is referring to Jews and Gentiles, is referring to uh, the nation of Israel and those that are not of the nation of Israel. He says that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, because this is Paul speaking to the Ephesians who are Gentiles. He said he came and preached, uh, preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. So notice, he says, there's, there were some people that were nigh. That's the nation of Israel, the Jews. To them was given the oracles of God. To them was given the covenants and those things. And then he says, there was those who were far off. Those were the Gentiles, who maybe did not know of the God of Israel, did not know the God of, of the Old Testament. He says, for through him we both, notice verse 18, and I'm sorry, did I skip a... a, a no, verse 18. For through him, talking about Jesus, We both, talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers. Because remember, he's talking to Gentiles. He says, you used to be a stranger. The word stranger means a foreigner. In fact, he says, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and you know, today you have many people who will attack our church and attack our belief system and say, "Oh, you you guys are anti zionist and you, you know, you you believe in replacement theology, and you believe uh, that God, you know, has now replaced uh, the, the the nation of Israel and the promises of Israel and the covenants of Israel, and He's replaced them with uh, with Christianity." And they'll say, "You're not a dispensationalist, and you're a heretic." Here's the problem with that. That's what the Bible says, I mean, the Bible clearly is teaching here. I don't understand how somebody could read this chapter and not understand. He's saying, Look, there were those who were afar off, and there were those who were near. There was Jews, and there was Gentiles. If you read the chapter, he, he spells it in every way there's the circumcision, the uncircumcision. He says, You were strangers and foreigners, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Notice what he says, and are built upon the foundation. He said, look, this whole house, this whole kingdom is going to be built upon a foundation. What's the foundation? Notice, of the apostles, that's represented by Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the prophets, that's represented by Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the future kingdom, the coming kingdom, will not be just a New Testament kingdom. Jesus will bridge together and bring together the old and the new the Old Testament, the New Testament, the prophets, the apostles, he says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And of course, it's all built upon Christ. And the idea, and I'm going to preach through Ephesians, so we'll dig into this passage uh, later on uh, soon. But the idea of a chief cornerstone is that when you would begin to lay the foundation for a building, there was one stone, which was the cornerstone, and you would place that cornerstone, and everything else on that foundation and everything else in that building was built on that one foundation of the cornerstone. And here's what he's saying. He's saying Jesus, all of it, all of it, the law and the prophets, they all speak about Jesus. The Old Testament's about Jesus. The New Testament's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And this Mount of Transfiguration, the whole reason we have this story, the whole reason we, 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 uh, Jesus gives us the story, or the Bible gives us story, is to show that the entire Bible and the entire plan has always been about the Lord Jesus Christ. From Old Testament Through the New Testament, it's all about Christ. Now, in that context, in that context, I want you to notice the star of our show, Peter. Go to Luke chapter 9 and look at verse 33. Because the Mount of Transfiguration is highlighting Jesus. It's highlighting that Moses spoke of Jesus. The prophets spoke of Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle of our faith. Everything we believe is founded upon the rock. It's founded upon the chief cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. We as New Testament believers look back to Christ. They as Old Testament believers look forward to Christ. But it's all built upon Christ. And then in verse 33, we have Peter, who tends to speak too much sometimes. And put his foot in his mouth. Notice what he says, verse 33. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles. Now, a tabernacle is a tent. They said, let's stay up here. And I, and I can't fault Peter for this one. I mean, if, if I was up there with Peter and uh, with, with Moses and Elijah, I might ask for us to go camping too, you know? He say, hey, let's spend some time here, and I want to talk to Moses, I want to talk to Elijah, this is so cool. He says, let us make three tabernacles. He says, one for thee, Jesus, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. But notice what the Bible says, not knowing what he said. And at this point, Peter kind of put his foot in his mouth, and he says something that is very displeasing to God the Father, who's listening in, on this conversation. Go to Mark chapter 9. Let me show you how it's worded in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, look at verse 5. So in Luke 9:33, we're told he gives this idea, "Hey, let's all stay up here. We'll build three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias." Notice he doesn't say we'll build six tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, one for Peter, one for James, one for John. He says, look, we're not even in the same, in the same uh, uh, you know, realm as you guys. You guys are in a, on a different playing field. We'll build tabernacles for you guys. We'll sleep under the sun, uh, under the stars. You know, we'll build tabernacles for you guys. And you guys are, are up there and we are down here. And he says this not knowing what he said. Are you there in Mark 9? Look at verse 5. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Notice verse six, for he wist not. The word wist means to know. He knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And here we have Peter here we have Peter. Go with me to the book of Proverbs if you would. Here we have Peter who finds himself in this situation where he just woke up from a nap. You know what I mean? You, you wake up from a nap, you're kind of groggy a, a little bit, you know? And he wakes up from a nap and he sees Jesus and his glorified body. He sees Moses and Elijah who've been dead for a long time and he sees them in their glory. He sees all this. He's kind of a scared. He's kind of afraid. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. So he gives this idea and he says, hey, let's make three tabernacles. We're not in the same level as you guys, but let's make three tabernacles, we'll hang out here. Now, I, I want to explain to you what's happening in this story, but before we do that, I do want to just point out one thing. Are you there in Proverbs uh, chapter 17? Look at verse number 28, because here we find Peter, he doesn't know what to say, so he just says something. Big mistake. Proverbs 17, verse 28, notice what the Bible says. Even a fool when he holdeth his peace is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. So let me just make this real practical point. And the practical point is this. Sometimes when you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all. Amen. People are constantly trying to pressure me to, you've got to speak up and you've got to say something in this situation. You've got to give your opinion. You've got to make yourself know. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that we should be slow to speak. Amen. The Bible says that it is more wise to listen and to think than to just give your opinion and to just put things out there. And here, the Bible tells us that even a fool, even someone who doesn't know what to do, even someone who's afraid and they're not sure what they should do, when he holdeth his peace is counted wise. And here's the truth. When you stay quiet, people may judge your motives, but they'll never misquote you. When you stay quiet, people might think, I don't know what he thinks, but they'll never be able to use your words against you. And here we have Peter who, not knowing what he said, makes a comment, and he wist not what to say So they were, because they were sore afraid. Now, why don't you notice how God the Father responds to this whole thing? Go, go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, it's the first book in the New Testament. It should be fairly easy to find. You say, I don't get it. What was, the wrong, what was wrong with what Peter said? Well, I want you, why don't you notice what God the Father says? God the Father weighs in on this, Matthew 17, verse 5, notice what it says. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, the while he yet spake, though, that's Peter. While Peter's talking about, let's make three tabernacles. We don't need tabernacles. We're not on the same level as you guys. We'll make three tabernacles for you. We'll hang out up here. It'll be great. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, Two times in the ministry of Christ did the Father speak from heaven, and he said both, the same thing both times. One was at the baptism of Christ. The other one was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And here's what God the Father says. He says, this is my beloved son. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about Moses? No. Talking about Elijah? No. He's talking about Jesus, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he says this, hear ye him. And this is what the father is saying to Peter. The father is saying to Peter, Peter, you don't need Elijah, and you don't need to hang out with Moses. You say, well, what's wrong with what Peter was doing? Here's what's wrong with what Peter was doing. Peter, yes, humbled himself. And did not put himself or his brother or his friend on the same level as Jesus and Elijah and Moses. The problem with Peter is that he put Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Do you understand? He, he said, hey, we're not on the same level. We can sleep outside. We can sleep under the stars. We don't need shelter. But we'll make three tabernacles for you guys. And he made them equal. And God is saying, Peter, the whole point I have you up here on the Mount of Transfiguration is to show you that there is one name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There is one who has been put above all principality and all power. His name is Jesus. And I'm trying to show you that Jesus is to have preeminence in all things. And when we put Elijah and Moses on the same level as Jesus, we are speaking foolishness. So Jesus, so God, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then he says this, hear ye him. Keep your place there in Matthew. Go, go to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not sure if I, I told you to keep your place in Ephesians or not. I meant to, but go back to Ephesians and let me show you this. The idea is that the transfiguration of Christ shows the preeminence of Christ. And we talked about this last week, because we're kind of following up on the same context. Remember Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Jeremiah's, and some say you're Eli's, and some say you're the prophets. And then he said, who do ye say that I am? And Peter, on his up, said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what matters in the Christian life, and what matters for eternity, is what you believe about Jesus. It's what you believe about Jesus. And the problem with the world, and we talked about this last week, but it comes up in the context here again. The problem with the world is that the world, unless you're talking as just some sick reprobate, normally, by and large, the world is going to tell you, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good prophet. And you know what the world will do? The world will do the same thing that Peter will do. He'll put Jesus, they'll put Jesus and Moses on the same level. Well, he's a good teacher, like Moses. He's a good teacher, they'll say, right? Like Muhammad, like Gandhi, like Confucius, like whatever religious leader you want to believe. But look, what makes New Testament Christianity different is that we don't believe that Jesus is on the same level as any other man. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the way to salvation. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And what you believe about Christ will determine where you spend eternity. Because there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. there in Ephesians 1, look at verse 20. Notice what the Bible says. Which he, the context is the Father, Ephesians 1, 20, which he wrought in Christ, the Father was working in Christ, notice, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, notice verse 21, far above all principality and power and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And I put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And here's all I'm telling you. Here's all I'm telling you. If you say, well, I believe Jesus was a good man, you're going to die and go to hell. I believe he was a good teacher. You're going to die and go to hell? Why? Well, I, I, I think he was a good prophet. You know, like Gandhi. Here's the problem. Gandhi was a man who died and went to hell, by the way. Amen. You say, well, what, what must I believe about Christ? You must believe that he is the Messiah. You must believe that he is the Savior. You must believe, must believe that he is the Son of God, that he is deity, and you must believe that he is the way of salvation and the only way of salvation. And that's what the Mount of Transfiguration is about. God is showing, this is my plan. This is what it's always been about. This is what it's all about. It's about one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what do we learn here on the Mount of Transfiguration? We learn, first of all, of the preeminence of Christ. But, secondly, tonight, I'd like you to know this, and if, if you can make your way back to 2 Peter, towards the end of the New Testament, you have the book of Revelation. If you head back, you've got Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, and then the book of 2nd Peter. Not only do we learn about the preeminence of Christ, but we also learn about the persuasiveness of the Bible. We learn about the authority of the Word of God. Brother Nate preached for me on Wednesday while I was in Texas, and he preached a great sermon on the King James Bible and the inspiration of the King James Bible, and and, and and all of that was good. Uh, but I want, you, and I want you to notice, I just want to add to that, uh, you know, he, he preached about that and I'm preaching about the Mount of Transfiguration, so I have to show you this, uh, so I'm just kind of adding on to his sermon. But notice what the Bible says in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm, I'm saying that because I know he went to this passage in his sermon, and he did a great job. Second Peter 1, look at verse 16. Notice what Peter says, because Second Peter is written by Peter, right? The man who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, of course, he says this. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Isn't that what people say about Christianity? Oh, it's a cunningly devised fable. What's cunningly mean or cunning? It means deceitful or sly. What's the word devise mean? This means something that's planned out. What's a fable? It's a made-up story. People say, oh, you're just believing a made-up story. You're following a cunningly devised fable. Peter says, we have not followed a cunningly devised fable. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say well if, if you don't, if you're not following a cunning device fable then what is it that you're following Well notice what Peter says Peter tells us he says, but we're eyewitnesses of his majesty and I don't have time to develop this but please understand this we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe in, in the Bible and specifically when we're talking about the New Testament we believe in the New Testament because there were eyewitnesses there were men and women who saw the resurrected Christ and they wrote about it and he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. Notice what he says. He says, look, I saw it. He said, Peter's saying, I am stating to you, I am giving you my testimony, I am giving you my witness, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter is saying, I am a witness and I'm telling you this is what happened. People say, oh, well, you're just believing Peter. Look, if you take that attitude, you can't believe anything. You can't believe in... How, how do you... You believe in Napoleon? What are you, in the cult? Napoleon? How, how do you know about Napoleon? Well, I read about it in a book. Oh, you are gonna trust that guy. You believe in George Washington? You must be an idiot. You believe Abraham Lincoln... Look, how do we know anything? Because of eyewitnesses. Amen. And you say, well, eyewitnesses... Look, please understand this. And I don't have time to develop this. But if the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ... If the, the books that they wrote, the Bible they wrote, within the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, if it could be uh, uh, proven wrong, it would have been proven wrong. If they, if they stormed Jerusalem, claiming a resurrected Christ, and all that needed to be done was somebody roll a stone away and say, Look, there he is, you're lying. New Testament Christianity would not have made it past the first century. The reason we believe in Christ is because there were eyewitnesses who saw the resurrection. There were eyewitnesses who saw these miraculous things. And hear what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, I'm not believing a cunningly devised fable when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He said, we saw it. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Look, he's he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice verse 18. And this voice, notice what Peter says. In this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. He's referring to the story we're reading about in Matthew 17 and Luke 9, the Mount of Transfer. Here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, I'm an eyewitness. I heard it with my own ears. I'm the one that foolishly put it out there and tried to make it seem like Jesus was equal with Moses and Elijah. But I learned that the Father gave honor and glory to Jesus when I heard with my own ears the words out of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount, verse 19. Notice what he says. He like, with all that said, though, he said, I was there. I heard it. I'm your eyewitness. And then he says this, verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Amen. Do you understand what Peter just said? Peter said, I was there. I saw it, and I heard it. He said, but you know what's more sure than my eyewitness account? He said, the word of God. He said, you know what's more sure than my testimony? You know what's more sure than my experience? You know what's more sure than what I saw and what I heard? He said, look, I'll tell you my testimony. I'll tell you what I saw. But here's the truth. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. As unto a light that shineth in dark place until the day dawn, and the day star arise in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's the inspiration of Scripture. Amen. The preservation of Scripture. And by the way, it's the King James Bible. And I'm not going to re-preach Brother Nate's sermon, and, uh, you know, and we've got documentaries and things, but Here's the point. Here's the point. The Bible trumps your experience. The Bible trumps whatever you thought you heard, whatever you thought you felt. And Peter actually heard it and saw it, and it was true. It was real. And Peter himself says, I was there! But you know what you should trust? The Bible. You have a more sure word of prophecy. This week I was preaching at the Fire Breathing Conference in, in Fort Worth, and I was talking with Brother Scott Dunn, uh, Brother Scott and his wife and uh, Pastor Thompson's and his wife, we all had dinner after after the service. And we we're sitting there talking, and he was telling me this story about how they they, they were doing this uh, soul winning marathon uh, over where he lives in, in Oklahoma. And um, the, the soul winning marathon was in an area far away from his church, so they were trying to find a church in the area that they could... Kind of join up with and, and maybe when they get somebody saved, move them or, or let them know about the church in that area. And he was having this conversation with this pastor. I, I can't remember what the guy's name. I know his first name was Tyrone. I can't remember what his last name was. But he was talking to this pastor. And the pastor was, you know, asking him questions, and, and he started talking about Scott, and he kind of knew about, you know, our type of churches and what we believe and things. So the guy was being kind of hostile towards him, and Brother Scott realized that, and he just tried to be nice to him and thought, okay, this isn't going to go anywhere, but, you know, let me end this conversation well or whatever. The guy started asking him all these questions, They're like, well, you guys believe in the reprobate doctrine. And he starts questioning him about the reparate doctrine. And Brother Scott's like, look, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to disrespect you. I mean, if you want to know what we believe, I'd be happy to show you. And he starts questioning him, and he starts telling him these things. And Brother Scott's like, he just goes to Romans 1, you know? Hey, here's what the Bible says. And he, talks about, and he gets to the part where he talks about the, how they're given over to, to do that which is not convenient, to do that which is unnatural, to do that which is not normal, which doesn't come naturally. And Brother Scott, he's like trying to, you know, be tactful with this guy. So he uses this extreme example, right? He's like, look, the Bible says that when they're rejected, when they're reprobates, they do things that normal people wouldn't do. They do unnatural sins. And he says, this is like, he said, let me give you an example. It's like a pedophile. And he's saying, look, it's not normal for a grown man to be attracted to a little child. He's like, that's not normal. That's not natural. The only way that somebody does that, Romans 1. Does it, do you guys believe this? I, I don't know. You seem like you're confused. You know, the only way that somebody gets to this place is when their conscience has been seared. They've been given over to a reprobate mind. And he's showing this to them from the Bible. And here's what the pastor says. Well, I have an ex-pedophile in my church. I have a reformed pedophile in my church. And here's all I'm telling you. Is the only reason I'm bringing this excuse up. Or not excuse up, good night. Is the only reason I'm bringing this illustration up. Because here's what they want us to think. They want us to, oh, okay. Well, I mean, you got, a, if you got some reformed pedophile in your church. I guess I'll just throw Romans 1 out the window then because your experience, obviously, is more important than the Word of God, right? You understand that? When people tell you, well, I know the Bible says this, but here's my experience. I really did speak in tongues. <laughs> I really did have this. I really did see Jesus. He had long hair. I really did do whatever. Listen to me. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And Peter says, I saw it. I heard it. I was there. But the Bible trumps experience every time. And if the Bible says that a pedophile, it's unnatural sin, it's wicked, and somebody can only get there when they're rejected, I don't care how many ex-pedophiles you line up and show me, the Bible's right and you're wrong every time. The Bible's always right. And this is what Peter says. Notice what he says there in verse 18. He says, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount, we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well. Please listen to this. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. He said, you know what? Here's what Peter saying. Peter's saying, You would do well to take heed to whatever the Bible says. Because you know what the Bible does? You know what the Word of God does? It makes you better at life. And today, everybody wants to give us their experience and tell us why this doesn't apply to them. And, you know, you preach preached things about the Bible. You teach things about the Bible. You teach about marriage. You teach about child You teach about finances. You teach about forgiveness. You teach about whatever. You teach about anything. And everybody always wants to tell you why well, my experience is different and why it doesn't apply to me. Look, you would do well you do well to take heed to the Bible. And when people give you an experience that contradicts the Bible, go with the Bible every time. Because Peter Peter said, I was there, I heard it. And we have a more sure word of prophecy in the Word of God. Following the Bible makes you better at life. So what do we learn from the model of transconfiguration? Well, number one, we learn about the preeminence of Christ. That Christ is not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. And we learn about the persuasiveness of the Bible, that the Bible should always trump experience. And look, let me just go ahead and make it a little more applicable because Romans 1 is very clear about homosexuality and the sodomites. And, and Romans 1 and Leviticus 20 and Judges 19 and, and, and uh, Genesis 19, they tell us, look, when it comes to the sodomite, the homosexual, the LGBTQ, whatever, you know uh, you know what people are always saying to us? Because we'll, people will say, we tell people, we're Bible-believing Christians. Everything we need to know comes from the Bible. Amen. Amen. Open up this book and show me where homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, where any of that is ever put in a positive light. You won't find it. Do you know what you find, though? You find where God, Judges 19, Genesis 19, where they're raping people, where they're abusing people. You find Romans 1, where Paul is saying they're filled with all unrighteousness, where Paul is saying they're going to do all these wicked things, where he's just calling them a psychopath, reprobate, evil people. And then people say, oh, well, I work with one and he's so nice. Oh, okay, well, we'll just throw the whole Old Testament out, out the window then. Look, you, you need to realize that if you're going to follow the Bible, the Bible needs to trump whatever experience you think you have. It's, I'm sorry you spent so many years watching Will and Grace and they you know, brainwashed you into thinking that they're all just these flamboyant little happy-go-lucky people. But that's not what the Bible says. And if that offends you, here's, here's the challenge I give you. Show me in the Bible, Will and Grace. Show me in the Bible where they're nice and they're good because that's not what the Bible says. And you know what most Christians, the biggest problem with that they have is the Bible. Most Christians today, they love everything about Christianity except the Bible. They love the music, they love the atmosphere, they love their little circles, they love everything, except the biggest problem they have is the Word of God. But you know what? We have a more sure Word of God. And the Mount of Transfiguration shows us, and the Mount of Transfiguration teaches us not only of the preeminence of Christ, but it teaches us of the persuasiveness of the Bible. Let me give you a third one, we'll finish up. Go to Exodus 34 if you wouldn't mind. There's a third lesson we can learn from the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's this, the preeminence of Christ, the persuasiveness of the Bible. Here's point number three, we'll finish up. The ice cream's getting cold. It's, it takes a minute, but you got it. Number three, we learn about the power of fasting. We learn about the power of fasting. Here's what's interesting. There's something that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all have in common on that mountain. And something very specific to the three. And it's this. All three and only those three performed a 40-day fast The Bible. Let me show it to you quickly. Exodus 34, verse 28. Exodus 34, verse 28. And he, Moses, that's Moses in the context, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He, talking about Moses, did neither eat bread nor drink water. And you can't live without drinking water for 40 days. Obviously, God supernaturally sustained him. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant. The Ten Commandments. So Moses, when he went up on the mountain and he received the Ten Commandments and came down with the Ten Commandments, he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights and he did not eat and he did not drink water. He did not eat bread and he did not drink water. Moses is one of the three men in the entire Bible who performed a 40-day fast. The second one, go to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Look at verse 8. You're there in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First, Second Samuel, First Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 8. The second character in the Bible who performed a 40-day fast was Elijah. 1 Kings 19 and verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. And he, Elijah, arose and did eat and drink. Because God cooks for him a meal and God provides a meal. So he ate and he drank it. Notice. And went in the strength of that meat. So he had one meal and then he went on this journey, and the strength of that meat, of that food, notice, 40 days and 40 nights until Horeb, the mountain of God. Which, by the way, is the same mountain that Moses met with God, the mountain of, of God. So here we have Elijah. He eats one meal, and then he travels for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasts. That's the only thing he ate, 40 days and 40 nights. So we have Moses, who did a 40-day fast. We have Elijah who did a 40-day fast. And then there's our third character. Go to Matthew. Matthew, first book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find. Matthew chapter 4. The third character in the entire Bible who did a 40-day fast is the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Notice what it says. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hunger. So we have three guys in the whole Bible who did a 40-day fast. And all three show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. They appear in their glorified body. And it happens to be the three guys in the entire Bible who did a 40-day fast. Go Go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Look at verse 3. It's our three guys, right? And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him, referring to Jesus, the three men who did a forty-day fast. You say, okay, well, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with anything? What's interesting is when you consider the fact that on the Mount of Transfiguration, you got the three men who did a forty-day fast, and when you compare it and you contrast it with the other apostles on the bottom of the mountain and what they're dealing with. Matthew 17, look at verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. And when they were come... And we read the whole chapter before uh, before the preaching started. So you know the context is this. Peter, James, and John are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They're meeting up with the apostles and with the multitude. And here's what they meet up with. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying... Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire, and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. So while Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, having a good time with Moses and Elijah, the three men that fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, down on the bottom of the mountain, you have this man who's bringing his, his son, who's demon-possessed, to the apostles, and he's asking him to cure. The apostles have already performed miracles. They've already cast out devils. They've already done these things. But he brings this demon-possessed child, and they could not cure him. Notice verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? The word suffer means allow. How long will I allow you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And of course, naturally, verse 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Don't miss verse 21. How be it this kind, how be it this kind, goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Isn't that interesting? You got Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, the 40-day fasters up on the mountain, and on the bottom of the mountain, you've got a problem that the apostles could have dealt with if they had fasted. But they hadn't fasted. So Jesus, who had, had to come down and deal with it. And here's what I'm telling you. Here's what I'm telling you. In the Christian life, you may have issues and problems that you'll be able to deal with with the power of the Holy Spirit, But there are times in our life when our walk is not enough and we have to go deeper with Christ and it will require fasting. And if you want to If you want to get to the place where you can not only just deal with the regular demons and the regular devils and the regular reprobates, but you can get victory over even the hard cases, Jesus says there's a kind. He says, in fact, it's this kind that goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. And I'm not preaching on fasting tonight or a whole sermon. I can do that at another time. But let me just give you a few thoughts on fasting. Here's what fasting does. It denies the flesh. You tell your belly, the Bible tells us, that you are not in control you, I'm in control, it denies the flesh, which unlocks the flow of the spirit, allows your spirit to flow through your bellies, what the Bible says, allows you to draw closer to God, to allow the power of the spirit to work inside of you, and it builds your faith. And I just think it's interesting, I don't think it's a coincidence, that they're having this fasting episode on the bottom of the mountain, while you're meeting with the three top fasters in the Bible, And God is trying to show us something. That the bound of transfiguration, it pictures for us the preeminence of Christ. And it pictures for us the persuasiveness of the Bible. We have a more sure word of prophecy. But it also pictures for us the power The power of fasting. And there are times when you may be going through a difficult season. You may be going through a difficult battle. You may be going through some issues and some problems. And you're saying, man, I I was able to fight this off before, but I can't get this one. I can't get this one resolved. I can't get victory in this area. You may need to go deeper. You may need to learn to fast and start to fast. And we've got sermons and resources on that on our website. But I would encourage you, what we learn here, what we learn here is that there's power in fasting. There's this kind that goes not out but by prayer and fasting. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the story and just the the things that we can learn from it, the applications that can be made. And Lord, I pray that you would always help us to remember that there is a preeminence to Christ, that Christ is not equal to any man. He is the God-man. Help us to remember the persuasiveness of the Bible. The Bible trumps anyone's experience, anyone's thoughts, anyone's ideas. We have a more sure word of prophecy, and it's the word of God. And Lord, help us to remember the power of fasting, that sometimes we need to just get serious about the battles we're fighting. And you, you've given us a way to allow the Spirit to flow through us, and Lord, we need to learn to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow you. But I just pray you'd help us to be able to learn from this passage, learn from the story. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.